0: All right, here we go. It's another installment of Soundbites from the Road. It has been quite a while since I sent out one of these. In fact, it's been about three months. That was not my original plan, but life happens, and here we are three months later. Um, a big reason is that I've been dealing with some health issues, nothing life-threatening, no big, massive, scary diagnoses, but just some things that I've had to deal with unexpectedly took a while to figure out what's going on. And because of that, I had to cancel the trip to Ireland that I had planned. That was kind of the big one, I think. But it's fine because I'm already planning to go back anyway. I was planning to go once this year and once next year. So it's fine. I'm just going to go next year. And actually, it's been an illuminating time. I've actually found out some things like really about slowing down even more as if we haven't already all slowed down due to the pandemic. But I don't know, I got some really deep personal lessons about what it means to travel my roots, And I think that I may have been kind of throwing myself headlong into it in ways that I would have in my, you know, kind of jet set Lisette days of traveling everywhere all at once. Um, And now I'm really getting some cues to do a lot of internal journeying and, um, you know, just take it one step at a time. And in fact, I've decided to reorient and really focus on my United States destinations first and do the whole project at a much slower organic pace. I think that's really going to be the way to go, which means you'll probably get these newsletter bits, bites, as they were, um, a little less frequently than I thought. I'm kind of laughing because I remember thinking, okay, it's going to be a monthly you know, newsletter, then it was like, oh, I think it's going to be just when I travel. So maybe quarterly or maybe every month or two months. And now I'm like, I don't know when they're going to come out. They'll just come out when they do. Um, so no big expectations there. And uh, yeah, it feels like the right thing. This project may stretch out longer than I planned over more than two years. We'll see. But in the meantime, I'm excited to be focusing in the United States And it's very meaningful and fortuitous that the next trip I ended up going on was this month, the beginning of the month, to Charleston, South Carolina. And I was going to do a longer kind of research trip, but due to the weather being extremely hot down there in August, I decided to focus it on the event I was going to attend, the kind of main event, which was a family reunion for my Gamble family line. And the Gambles are the line where my fifth great grandmother, who's also named Lizette, um she's a part of that line and so it was very important to me to go and i went with my uncle robert and we were only there 5 days but it was a really amazing 5 days and i plan to write a blog post actually about it yeah i will have a blog post about that i'll probably send out an email uh about that so you know when it's available and you can also follow me on instagram i'm actually going to be posting to my jet set Lizette instagram profile primarily now i just decided it was too confusing to have two different ones um, I'll save my Traveling My Roots Instagram profile for when I'm in podcast production. It's still there, but if you don't follow me yet at Jet Set Lizette on Instagram, open your phone and find at Jet Set Lizette on Instagram and hit follow because I really don't want you to miss out on my posts. So anyway, I'm going to write about Charleston. I'm going to write about the family reunion, but I thought what I would share is an interview that I did with a really great woman who i met who was willing to talk with me her name was erica veal she is a project archivist and interpretation specialist at the avery research center for african-american history and culture and she sat with me for about 20 minutes or 25 minutes and we talked about things like what makes the history of slavery in the south carolina low country unique um you know where were people brought in from africa and why and just the importance of Charleston to African-American history, why it's like the epicenter, one of the main epicenters of kind of the culture of African-American culture and experience in history. And so it was really an intriguing conversation. She also offered some insights or recommendations for people who are going to South Carolina to research enslaved ancestors or really any ancestor, but particularly enslaved ancestors and also just important, um, places to visit. Really just a really great conversation. She had a lot of great resources if you're interested in this topic in particular. And I know maybe this topic isn't for everyone, but I just thought it was a really good discussion and wanted to share it. Overall, I'm really happy I chose to go even for only five days. Charleston is a place I'd never really thought much about or planned to visit. I don't know why. I'd never been to South Carolina, but I was left like deeply struck by it. And I am planning to return with my uh, now good friend and genealogy buddy, Kelly McCoy. Um, We are going to do our trip that we planned on the kind of genealogy research end. We're going to do that probably in February or March. Really excited to go back. I'm going to do a lot of reading and um, watching of some of those documentaries that were recommended by Erica Veal before going back. The little bit that I experienced, and I did go on some tours. Of course, did the Gamble family reunion, which took us up to Nisqually, South Carolina, which is north of Charleston, about an hour and a half, um, to see the land where our enslaved ancestors were held. Um, you know, all of that, all the learning that I did experience, just wet my whistle, so to speak. I really was um, kind of bit with this bug of wanting to know everything I can about the Low Country and really more than one of my lines go back to South Carolina. And I do know through African ancestry DNA testing that I had to have had in my ancestral line a Mende or Temne woman. The Mende and the Temne are from Sierra Leone and the slave traders took people from Sierra Leone to specifically work the rice plantations that were in South Carolina. Basically, they brought the rice technologies and know-how, how to you know basically grow rice and Charleston was the richest city in the country for a long time because of the rice industry and, and of course, due to the slave trade. Quite honestly, Charleston became the richest city in the country because of slavery. And that history is everywhere you look in Charleston. It's impossible to ignore it, it's impossible to deny it. It's like oozing um, history of that time period. So it's, it's a very, unique place to visit for sure. There's a lot more to it too. I'm not saying it's not all the great things with the restaurants and the very beautiful buildings and Southern charm. I'm not trying to detract from that, but I was struck by how much slavery was still this present kind of shadow over the city. So much more. There's so much more to talk about with Charleston. And Erica talks about some of that. So I'll just let her do that. So after this little blurb, I'm going to just go right to that interview. I think I've said everything I need to say for the moment. I'm not sure when the next one will come out. Um, I'm not sure if I'll be sharing more audio from that trip. I may. But for sure, keep an eye out for the blog post. And um, I'll be offering more of my reflections on the trip at that point. And I may post something about my travel to France that's coming up, but that's not really my DNA. (laughs) That's just a place that I love and we're visiting friends, Um, but you never know. I may be inspired to do that while there. All right, with that, I'm going to stop rambling and let you listen to the interview with Erica Veal. Would love to get feedback. You can hit reply to the email that this audio newsletter came in, or you can leave a comment on the audio newsletter post, but I always love to hear what you think. So hope you enjoy it. And with that, let's go ahead and take a listen. Well, first of all, so what is your work that you do here? I'm
1: a research archivist and interpretation coordinator. Okay. So I do ar- uh, process collections and I lead uh, the interpretive tours. I train mm-hmm. our uh, graduate students and undergraduate students and then do some service work with the Low Country Action Committee. Oh, great. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And then the Avery Center, Avery Research Center. Yeah, for African-American history and culture. Okay. And it's a repository? Maybe you can just tell me a little bit about it.
1: Sure. So Avery began as a school. So this building was built in 1868. It was a private school for African-Americans, a missionary-funded school. And um, in addition to the primary and secondary education, you could also receive a teacher certificate here at Avery. And it closed down in 1954. Hmm. And graduates from the school uh, worked really hard to negotiate a relationship with the College of Charleston. In the late 70s and then 1985, the Avery Research Center was born and um, it was absorbed into the College of Charleston. It's a part of the library system. So we're an archival repository, a museum, art gallery, and then we have public programming and outreach that we do here. Mm-hmm. So the mission basically is to collect, preserve, and promote the history of the African diaspora with a focus on South Carolina Lowcountry.
0: Okay, that's great. It's a beautiful building too, mm-hmm. amazing building. We do a tour yesterday, I was like, Oh, that's where we're going. Okay. Um, so what makes the history of slavery? I mean, I know this is a huge topic, but what do you feel like makes the history of slavery unique in the South Carolina low country? Like how is it different than other places in the South?
1: Well, it's really different because of the terrain. So historically, the low country is describing the coastal plain essentially. So 30 miles from the coast inland is what we call the low country here in the Southeast Atlantic coast. And so it was characterized by bottomland hardwood swamps so basically old growth cypress tupelo swamp and really ancient trees really hardwood waterlogged um and slow slow moving water and very similar to the west coast of africa the rice coast in africa so when slavery took root here um it was this was a british colony established in 1670 essentially and so rice became one of the number one cash crops i think that slave traders were purchasing rice from West Africa to pr- provision slave ships. And so it was one of the experimental crops that eventually ended up becoming the number one cash crop here in the Lowcountry. And so because of that history, um, the history of South Carolina Lowcountry and slavery is really different because, A, they were growing rice um, throughout the from the, the colonial era all the way up into the end of the Civil War. And really beyond that, in some areas up into the 1930s, rice was grown. But... Um, uh, it was also a black majority so the Charleston was the the largest slave port in North America and The majority of African-Americans have a descendant that was brought through the slave port at Charleston And they were quarantined on Sullivan's Island for a few weeks before they were brought onto the mainland and sold throughout the low country and the rest of The, the South um, And so because of the black majority we had a really small white population the, There were a lot of disease outbreaks because of the the terrain yellow fever malaria, you know lack of fresh water So all those things kind of kept the numbers for Europeans really relatively low through most of the history of slavery. And so it was really up until the 1960s and 70s that we maintained that black majority. But because of that, and because of the fact that the majority of the enslaved Africans that were brought here were coming from a very small area in West Africa. Early on, they were coming from Angola, Congo, Barbados, Antigua. We have a really strong connection to Barbados as our sister colony. Um, the architecture and stuff you see here is, is Barbados style but once rice became the number one cash crop most of the enslaved people that were brought here came from the Sierra Leone River area so about 300 miles north and south of the Sierra Leone River there is a uh, the British established a slave trading post on Blunts Island which is this island right in the middle of the mouth of the river and so we have people from Liberia Sierra Leone and Senegambia just constantly coming and refreshing the culture and so this is one of the most Africanized places in North America because of that history. And the, the language here, Gullah Geechee language, is most closely related to a, a language spoken in coastal Sierra Leone, which is known as Sierra Leone Creole, and two communities can communicate without need, you know, the need for a translator. And um, so, yeah, I mean, everything that we have here, like, like I said, the language, the people, the culture, the foodways, the architecture is all West African or Afro-Caribbean. And, um, you know, Charleston became the richest city in colonial America because of that. And today, you know, it's been the number one tourist destination worldwide for about a decade. And it's because of that same thing. People are coming here to experience this unique culture that was basically created because of the labor of enslaved Africans. Just trying to kind of make a way during slavery. Um, another thing that's unique about slavery in the Low Country is because of the black majority, you don't really have like... The black people here didn't always interact with white people, you know, especially outside of the city. Now, the city was even more unique. The peninsula, people that were enslaved in the city of Charleston, those were more like craftspeople, bricklayers, carpenters and blacksmiths and things like that. And they participated in the slave hire system where they, you know, oftentimes worked off site from where they were enslaved and lived and um, were able to maybe sometimes even save a little money for themselves in that process. Um, but out in the more rural areas, on the rice plantations and indigo plantations and Sea Island cotton plantations, which was a luxury cotton that was grown in the Low Country, um, you know, most of the black people that were enslaved and most of the Africans did not interact with white people, especially in peak, you know summer and fall when the mosquitoes were worse and the disease disease outbreaks were most common. So we didn't have necessarily white overseers. We had black drivers who would be in charge of making sure that. Tasks were completed on on the plantations out here, and they called it a task system, which um, instead of kind of working people from sun up to sundown, like you are familiar, probably more familiar with with cotton and tobacco plantations, people had a quota that they were responsible for every day, depending on the time of season, whether it's planting or harvesting the day might be longer or shorter, but once they got their quota done, then they were able to work for themselves for the rest of the day, you know garden hunt or assist somebody, maybe a loved one with their quota and is believed that that also contributed to the, the many, many African survivals that we see in the Gullah Geechee community and the African-Americans in the, in the Southeast uh, Atlantic Coastal area, just because all those really unique traits.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. I kind of knew some of that, but not all of that, so that's really helpful. So it really is really different. Mm-hmm. And, Very much so. Um, and I did know that the people were, com- were being brought from the rice-growing cultures, mm-hmm. I mean, from like, you know, Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. Um, and one question I have is, I feel like, obviously, well, being here, you can see how much, well, I was telling him, it's like the city's dripping in slavery history, but, like, how has the African culture, I mean, it's really shaped Charleston, mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah and South Carolina, but would you say even... Like, I saw that show, High on the Hawk. Yeah. I feel like it's really influenced American culture. For sure, for sure. Is there ways in which you can describe...
1: Yeah, it it did. It does, because the Gullah Geechee culture is, like, the grandparent of the African-American culture. So, um, you know, rice was a really lucrative industry here. But over time, you know, the, the industry, industry just declined, and we had such a large concentration of enslaved workers here. And as the short staple cotton industry began to develop slave owners were able to recoup some of their losses from rice by selling people so the and this also after the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade so the internal slave trade in north america was basically driven by enslaved gullah geechee people being sold out of the low country all the way west as far as east texas and so in that way gullah geechee culture spread uh westward and it kind of diluted The farther away it got so it's interesting because sometimes african-americans kind of like make this pilgrimage here um knowing you know some of the aspects of the history and like like i said before how it's the closest you can get to africa without leaving north america and then they get here and they're like oh this is i don't know they're expecting something more exotic but it's so familiar you know and they're not sometimes prepared for how familiar familiar the culture is and it's because this is african-american culture this is where it started this is where it was concentrated. And of course, Southern culture is not just, well, Gullah Geechee culture, African-American culture in the South, like the deep South, that's like a nation, we're like a nation within a nation, you know? And from here all the way to East Texas is where you have the highest concentration of black people still up to this day, where you have, you know, near majority or majority black counties uh, completely unbroken chain from here all the way to East Texas. And that culture doesn't just influence you know, black folks. It influences white folks, indigenous American people too. So, and then that—that that of course has an impact on the rest of, of the country.
0: Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and like I said, high on the hog is where I was really seeing that too with food. Mm. Hmm. Sure. is mac and cheese? Even from here, or no? No, I think that was, oh, that was
1: from, else. according to that show, that
0: came from what, one of George Washington's oh, enslaved right. people. That was one yeah, yeah, George Washington's. Recipe. Mm-hmm. Okay, but rice, and then right, he was showing sure. just like the you know, Oprah. I mean, mm-hmm. just there was definitely all these influences, and for then sure. just braised meats and right. stews, and right. Mm hmm. Um, and the, like red. Rice. Yeah, red, red rice. rice. It's, yeah. A, it's our regional variant of yep. Jollof
1: and Jambalaya. Those right. all have the same, same yep. or, or origins in West Africa.
0: Yeah. Well, and you said something interesting, which brings me to my next question, which is, you said most African-Americans, if they were tracing back the roots, would have people who came from can't for sure. come here, for sure. right? Because mm-hmm. it was the largest slave yeah. port, mm-hmm. And I think that's what's, you know, for us... I definitely have the Gamble family. Turns out we'll be with the woman who had left the information here. So I was like, okay, just checking. I wondered if it was her, but she left it here in 85 and she has a newer version of the book. But the Gambles, um, we're related through his mom's side, but also on his mom's, well, your mom's dad's side, but also through his mom's mom's side. My, my biological father, his brother, got tested for African ancestry, and they said that it had to have been someone from Sierra Leone, yeah. from the Mende Temne people sure. on that side. Mm-hmm. So then I'm like, I've been working on that line mm-hmm. and trying to sort that out. Yeah. But And then at, all along like the way, even mm-hmm. though our, our people yeah. ended up in Arkansas because they were sold, or no, they weren't sold. They were left to a son, and a couple of these family's sons moved yeah. to Arkansas. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's like as I look up people, as I see census records, so many people's parents were born in South Carolina, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. you've been in, just everywhere you run into like South Carolina. Yeah. It's so, like a diaspora. Yeah.
1: That's that. I have the same experience because I'm from California my mom was born in California and my grandmother was born in New Jersey and, um, her family were fleeing Georgia from sharecropping. They went to Florida first and then they made their way up to New Jersey. But, um, During slavery, they were actually originally enslaved in Edgefield, South Carolina, which is kind of like it's on the border with Georgia. And um, they were a, a generation before the Civil War. They were sold down to Albany, Georgia. So, yeah. Yeah. But we had no idea when I moved. My mom and I moved here when I was in eighth grade to Columbia, South Carolina she was going through a midlife crisis. (laughs) And uh, yeah, we just thought we were coming out here. But then, of course, we ended up finding relatives and cousins because this is where our roots are. But neither one of us knew that. Yeah. You
0: don't (laughs) realize how much this all comes Mm -hmm. back to South Carolina. Mm -hmm. I don't know. In in our minds, at least my mind, I always think about things like Virginia, places like Virginia. And I don't know where
1: else. You hear a lot more about Virginia. Tobacco. Uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. But
0: I didn't really realize how much it came through. It came To South Carolina. Yeah
1: when it comes to the deep south now virginia okay. and you know yeah. that's got a slightly different history and they had their own slave ports and okay. you know if you're from there you're less likely to maybe if you're if you have deep roots in in right. that area but when it comes to the deep south it wouldn't be what it is without south carolina
0: mm-hmm. okay so people like us are coming to south carolina to research enslaved ancestors i know there's a lot of information out there but since you work here you know what would be like your top couple tips I mean come here I mm-hmm. guess mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any tips like you're trying to find information I'm trying for to for genealogy yeah genealogy research research well I would start with genealogy research but I also say if you're just coming to understand the history we did a tour mm-hmm. but would you just say oh you got to do these three things for sure or something like that I don't
1: know. um well when it comes to I picked up a lot of tips from watching um, Henry Louis Gates' show. What is, I don't know, African- Oh, yeah, uh, Finding, Deep, finding, finding my, Your Roots. Finding Your, finding your Roots. Your roots. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of tips from that when they do their African-American um, guests' genealogy. Yep. One of the things is the 1860 brick wall, so we have to keep that in mind. A lot of people who call Avery doing genealogy research have hit the 1860 brick wall, and they don't know how to proceed beyond that and that's really tricky and it's a lot it's much easier to find ancestors after 1860 because we're in black people were enumerated on the census beginning in 1860 um before that you have to look at plantation records and so that gets a lot trickier and you know those can be privately owned those are archives that the information isn't made public so be prepared to kind of start digging deeper into like state archives and church records and things like that if you're trying to get information before 1860 and it's usually not going to be concrete Mm -hmm. uh, unless you're just really lucky but um it's going to be like very vague information and you're just going to have to match it up and cross-reference but um i get a lot of some of the best records that i found about my family histories particularly my dad's side which is uh, louisiana creole is from Family Search. Family Search is a great resource, and it's free, you know. Mo- a lot of similar stuff that you're going to find on Ancestry.com, but you can just get it for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, where the paper trail runs dry, DNA testing is super helpful, and sometimes you don't have to get this test yourself. If you do make an Ancestry.com account, even if you just do, like, a free trial, mm-hmm. um, with me, um, uh, most of my cousins who have Ancestry accounts have done DNA tests and I just cross reference all the information that I get from them. So that's, that's been really helpful. Um, but yeah, when it comes to trying to get an understanding of South Carolina's history, Mm -hmm. Avery is a great place to start. Mm -hmm. Um, there's some really good documentaries like family across the sea. That's a really good one. Grass roots is a good one. It's about, um, sweetgrass basketry and, um, I one of some people don't like to go on plantation tours under and understandably so, but we do, and not all tours are created equal out here. Um, but I think the interpretation at McLeod Plantation is really good, and Middleton Place does really good interpretation as well.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. that's
1: good to know outside of Avery. If you can get, you know, Avery, we haven't been doing public tours since the pandemic, but um, those, those sites do okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see a plantation tour being you know, difficult, but it feels like you would get more, much more understanding being on a plantation. Especially if you can go uh, a, a guided tour mm-hmm.
1: um, and then just cross-referencing because it's important to keep in mind that, you know, you might get conflicting information depending on the person that you're talking to. So just be able to think critically about the information that you're receiving and be prepared to dig a little bit more deeply on your own.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm sure there's probably a lot of good books, and you guys probably have lots of information online about books and things. Because I think too, like just understanding the history of the place. Because I'm trying to imagine, like, our people were here. They were out at ne- Neesmith, I think it's called Neesmith, mm-hmm. South Carolina, at mm-hmm. a small farm. Um, wasn't a big plantation at all. And I think there was like 22 of them out there or something like that. But you know, just what was what was it like and, you know, what what was going on. I did look on Family Search, They have the Charleston bills of sale mm. up online. So okay. I was looking for Lizette, mm-hmm. you know, and that was a trip. Going through those bills of sale, just, mm-hmm. oh, God. People, people after people just being sold. But just even seeing that, you know, because we hear about it, we talk about it, but to actually see the paperwork yep. and see how much people were being sold for, mm-hmm. to see all the notes about mm-hmm. the sales. And, mm-hmm. yeah, so I think you know, doing some of the tours. We did a Al Miller tour, went out to the islands. Mm-hmm. That was interesting, too. Maybe I could just ask you to wrap up sure. um, about that whole, the Gullah Geechee. It's so interesting how that cult, the cultures uh, survived because mm-hmm. of the islands, right? Because they were more well, isolated, or how did this, <coughs> how excuse <you> me describe <coughs> that?
1: I think one of the mistakes that people make, excuse me, fine. <coughs> is that... Um, they tend to overemphasize the islands. Okay. So, like I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, um, the low country is from the, coastal, the, the coast to 30 miles inland. Mm-hmm. So, on the very coast, of course, there's, sea, there's barrier islands and sea islands. Mm-hmm. So, the barrier islands are the beachfront islands, and the sea islands are the islands in between the mainland and the barrier islands. But, you know, the majority of the low country is not island culture. Um but it's so it's exoticized. So okay. people tend to overemphasize it on documentaries, high on the hog, they just tend to kind of go that way. But most of us from with Gullah Geechee roots are not from islands. We're from North Charleston, we're from Ravenel, we're from Hollywood, we're from, you know, Brunswick, Georgia, you know, Jacksonville. So, um so yeah, but the reason that Gullah Geechee culture was able to maintain itself the way that it has and continues to thrive up until the present day has a lot to do historically with the low country terrain and being dominated by bottomland hardwood swamps and the mosquitoes and the waterways, all those things um, made it really difficult for people to live here, um, particularly Europeans. So, and then after the Civil War, rice, such a labor-intensive crop, the way that they grew it here, um, with, without a lot of heavy machinery, because of the most of it would just sink, hmm. and so they really couldn't. Um, the, the The landscape could not support heavy machinery like the type that they're able to use in like Louisiana, Texas, uh, and their rice because they grow rice out there too. Um, and so, because of that, it's like if you can't if you have to pay people to grow rice, and it's not really a lucrative industry anymore. And so, most of the people who had the Europeans that had Plantations and owned a lot of land in the Low Country. A lot of them abandoned it after mm-hmm. the Civil War. Okay. So we had a lot of Black landowners, Black people who were able to get land, most of which is considered heirs property today. Um, that's owned collectively by all the heirs with, without maybe any paperwork involved. So a lot of that had to do with it. Um, the air air conditioning, you know, not being available and invented, you know, until more modern times. Malaria vaccine, all those things contributed to. This being a relatively isolated place, and you had all these Africans who were just kind of left here after the Civil War and just had to figure it out, and they already had this thriving culture. And so that's really where, where it came from. It wasn't until like the 60s and 70s that developers really started eyeing these waterfront properties and, you know, buying it out from under these Galagichi people. Or raising taxes or, you know, starting to... Like, there's islands out like Hilton Head or Kiowa Island. These were islands that had Gullah Geechee communities that we don't even think about. Like, certain islands will be like, you associate with Gullah Geechee people. Thank you. You're welcome. And, um... But other ones, you just think, oh, that's a resort. But pr- before it was a resort, it was subsistence Gullah Geechee farmers. And so... So, yeah, but those are all recent, recent changes. It's really like an ethnic cleansing that's going on out here with the gentrification. But, um, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Hope I answered your question. Yeah, no, that's great. Thank you so much. I mean, I think those are all the questions I had. You just, like, threw down a lot of good stuff there. I was
1: like, <laughs> whoa, that's a really good explanation.
0: Um, But yeah, and I'm coming back in the spring um, to do a longer stay because I was supposed to be here. You might have caught that somewhere in the emails, but I was supposed to be here longer and then it got kind of messed up because I've had some health stuff. So, But as it turns out, I think it's better to come for a longer stay when it's not so hot. Yeah. (laughs) So we're just here for the Gamble family reunion. Um, So going out to plantation sounds like a good idea. Um, I'll probably do some more, like you mentioned, some um, documentaries and things Mm -hmm. too Mm -hmm. and read, you know. Because, yeah, all I've seen is High on the Hog. That was probably the first time I really, I don't know, people would talk to me like, oh, you know, Galangichi. And I'd be like, yeah, I know what that is. What is that? (laughs) You know? Then High on the Hog, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. But then that was just one view. Yeah. So since then, as i found more about my ancestors, I've been kind of coming across things. And then I was like, oh, this is very interesting, this whole situation here
1: bj does really good work bj dennis from how in the hog he was just here last week he catered two events for us oh and he's he does really excellent work he's gone all over the africa and the diaspora comparing food ways and so he can trace all the low country dishes you know to their african origins and wow but um yeah um africanisms in the Gullah language um africanisms in the Gullah dialect lorenzo down turner that dow turner that's a really good book. So he was a, a teacher here in the 1920s and 30s um, on the Sea Islands. And so he was one of the first people, linguists, to study Gullah Geechee.
0: Oh, yeah. I saw a documentary about a song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the was... funeral song. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Um, so, yeah, Lorenzo Downs Turner's work led to the discovery and those connections of, around that. And um, The Cru- Crucible of the Carolinas is another mm. good book. We had, I think it's an anthology of... of Essays,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so those are usually the ones. And then Down by the River, Charles Joyner. It's about a, a, a plantation on the Savannah River. If you want to learn more about conditions on rice plantations, it's sure. really a hard, a hard read. I'm sure. You know, mortality rates were really high, especially for for children. The mm-hmm. average Gullah Geechee couple, you know, would bury fourteen, fifteen, sixteen babies. You know, only have one survive to adulthood. So there's a lot of misconceptions about resistances well immunities they'll say oh the africans were immune to to the tropical diseases," but of course we we weren't we just had some resistances via the sickle cell trait that helped us be more likely to survive we would still contract the disease we just were more likely not to die from them if we were like healthy you know middle-aged people but you know children and elderly people were really susceptible to them so okay yeah those are some some other books
0: Mm -hmm. okay well, thank you. Yeah, I said I'd keep it to about 20 minutes, so mm-hmm. I, I appreciate your time. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, just really appreciate it. And you're Erica Veal. Yeah. I didn't have <laughs> you say your name. Thanks, Erica.